2: Welcome
0: to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the New Book Network's podcast. I'm Deidre Tyler, host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking with Professor Jonathan White, author of The Civil War and Reconstruction Letters of Harriet M. Buss, my work among the freemen. How are you doing today? Good. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. I wonder if you could start by saying something about yourself and how you got started on this particular project.
0: Sure. So I'm a professor of American Studies at Christopher Newport University, which is in the Tidewater region of Virginia, kind of between Norfolk and Colonial Williamsburg. And I've been working on the Civil War for many years, and I was writing actually a history of dreams during the Civil War a few years ago. I published it with University of North Carolina Press. It's called Midnight in America, Darkness, Sleep, and Dreams During the Civil War. And I was researching that, and I was at the University of Pennsylvania Kislak Center, which is their special collections library, and I came across the letters of Harriet Buss. And she was a teacher from Massachusetts who ended up teaching freed people in a number of different places in the South during and after the Civil War. And I found a letter that she wrote where she described having a dream about being surrounded by combat. And so I worked that into my history of dreams during the Civil War. And I took a few photographs of some of the other letters because they were really remarkable. She met Robert Smalls and was his teacher. She saw Harriet Tubman in South Carolina and, and lots of other famous, important people. And so I took a couple of photographs of those letters and then went and did my history of dreams and some other projects. And a few years later... I went back to the University of Pennsylvania and I photographed the entire collection of Harriet Buss's correspondence. I thought, you know, these letters are so important that they should be published as a book. And I went to one of my very talented students, a young woman named Lydia Davis, and asked her, would you want to do this project with me? And Lydia was very excited to do it. And so we spent several years transcribing and editing and annotating the letters and then published it as the book with UVA Press.
1: Now, you start the book talking about William Archibald Dunning and his beliefs about Reconstruction. Can you give us a setting of the beginning of the book?
0: Yeah, Dunning was a historian a hundred years ago, and there's a whole school of thought that's named after him. And the Dunning School was a very racist way of thinking about the Civil War and Reconstruction. From their perspective, the people who were suffering the most and victimized the most during Reconstruction were the the white ex-Confederates. And so when he looked at teachers like Harriet Buss coming from the North down to the South to teach former slaves he saw them in a very negative light. And my hope is that using Harriet's letters to present her own perspective of, of her experiences, it'll give a very different perspective than the Dunningites gave to teachers like her.
1: I noticed in the letters, every time she would travel, she would tell her parents she made it safe. Can you tell us why that was so important?
0: Yeah, you know, it was very unusual in the 19th century to have a woman as mobile as Harriet Buss was. So she grew up in Massachusetts. And then, as a young, very young person, she decided she wanted to be a teacher and she got educated. And then she started teaching in Massachusetts. In the 1850s, she actually taught a little bit in Ohio and then all the way out in Illinois. And then she went back to Massachusetts. And when the Civil War began, she realized she had this new opportunity to have a new mission field. That's kind of how she saw her work as a mission. And so she traveled to South Carolina in 1863, and she was further away from home than she'd ever been before. And then she goes to Virginia uh, in the late 1860s and then North Carolina in the 1869-1871 period. And being so far away from home, I think she just wanted her parents to know that she was safe, especially when she was in South Carolina. This was during the war. So she is surrounded by areas of conflict and battle. And then in the post-war period, you have the rise of the Klan. You have white supremacist who might be hostile towards a white teacher who is teaching in an all-black school and who, in fact, in some cases, she had a black roommate and was working with these freed people. And so I think she wanted her family to know she was safe. But she also has humor that comes out in some of her descriptions to let her family know she's safe. In the first letter she wrote while she was heading toward South Carolina, she described how within three hours of getting on the boat, she felt seasick. And she said, I forget exactly how she put it, but she essentially said, you know, I tried to hold it in, but eventually I had to give it up. And so she let her family know uh, about the seasickness even, but that she still was safe and well for the most part.
1: She was basically doing a lot of missionary work. But let's go back. You talk about the Work Progress Administration interviews. Tell us what does that tell us about those former slaves and how they really wanted education
0: yeah you know the in the 1930s one of the ways FDR put people back to work was by using the Works Progress Administration and that funded all sorts of different projects art projects construction projects and one of the projects was that younger people, Went and interviewed former enslaved people, and most of the interviewers were white, although some of the interviewers were black. And they were asking these very elderly former slaves, people who were 90, 100 years old, what was it like for you 40 or 70 years ago when you were enslaved and during the Civil War? And one of the things that really st- Struck out to me. I read a number of these narratives for other books that I worked on. And one of the things that really struck me was the way that these elderly African Americans talked about how hard it was to gain an education in slavery, because it was illegal in the southern states for enslaved people to learn how to read and write, because the state authorities believed if if Black people can learn how to read and write, then they will read abolitionist literature, they'll become dissatisfied with being enslaved, as if they need to know that they should be dissatisfied, and they'll want to be free, and maybe they'll rise up in rebellion and insurrection. And so... The the white South prohibited slaves from learning how to read and write. And in these slave narratives, you get these just horrific stories of... People who learned how to read having their eyes gouged out or learning how to write, they had their fingers cut off by their enslavers or the great lengths they would go, that they would have these schools out in the woods where one slave who knew a little bit would teach the others what he or she knew. And so I I wanted to open up the book with a description of how those people struggled to learn how to read and write to then sort of set the stage for during the Civil War, when the war is going on and the Union Army is is gaining control of areas of the Confederacy, you've got white missionaries and black missionaries and white soldiers moving into these areas and the slaves are very eager To gain an education, something that for the most part had been denied them. And so it kind of sets the stage then for people like Harriet to move into the South and, and lets the reader know how important education was for African Americans as a way. There's a, there's another historian who says that gaining an education was a way for former slaves to put as as much space between them and bondage as possible. If they could gain an education, they could hopefully rise up in the world.
1: What When we look at the northern teachers coming, the northern white teachers coming into the south, were they criticized and who criticized them?
0: It's funny. Well, white southerners were certainly unhappy with these teachers coming in to the south because they did not want to see formerly enslaved people being educated. They they knew that that would turn white Southern society on its head. And so there's a lot of criticism uh, from... the the white Confederates and then ex-Confederates. And then it's interesting, you get to the Dunning School, and the Dunning School criticizes these teachers for being too radical and ugly and homely and all sorts of derogatory things. But then today scholars are sometimes criticizing them for not being radical enough or for being too paternalistic. And when I look at someone, I can't speak for all the hundreds and thousands of teachers who went from the North to the South. But when I look at someone like Harriet Buss, I see someone who had a who had a bit of a transformation during her time. When she goes to South Carolina in 1863, I think she does look down her nose a bit at the former slaves who she's educating. She, see, she talks in condescending ways. She talks about their mischievous, darky traits and says to her parents, you know, they, they're so difficult to discipline. It's not like the white children at North and you'd get a, a, basically a laugh out of coming down and seeing what my school is like. But as she spends more time in the South meeting with more African Americans in different places and different contexts, I think she grows to see herself less as someone who's above her students, like she did at the beginning of her experiences, and more as someone who's in partnership with her students. By the end of her career as a teacher during Reconstruction, she is working at what is now Shaw University in Raleigh, and she's training young men who are going to go on to become ministers and missionaries and teachers and she really has a tremendous amount of affection and respect for them gives them real opportunities to teach and to preach and to minister and her letters home you you get a sense of the community that she's a part of there and it's a very it, she's grown a bit i think from her earliest experiences during the war to these later ones 6 or 7 years later
1: when you look at Harriet, she stayed longer than most teachers. Most stayed only two years mm-hmm. or so, but she had a lifetime of working with the former slaves. Yeah. us about her missionary duties?
0: Yeah, she started in 1863 And she spent two years in South Carolina, and she went through an organization known as the National Freedmen's Relief Association. By August of 1864, she was really sick, and so she returned to Massachusetts. By the time she got well, she taught in Massachusetts for a few years. And then by 1868, she wanted to return to the South. And this time she went with a very important organization known as the American Missionary Association. She spent two years in Norfolk, and then she went to Raleigh with the American Baptist Home Mission Society. She spent 1869 to 71 there. And my sense is that around the time her father died, he died later in 1871, she returned home. She stayed at home with her mother until 1887 when her mother died. And then she decided to spend the last eight years or so of her life back in Shaw University in the South, working with the students there. And as you said, you know, most of the white teachers who travel to the South only spend two years and then that's it. But for her, this was her life's work, her life mission. And I think a big part of what she wanted to do, she not only wanted to train and educate former slaves, but she wanted to help them prepare for citizenship to be part of the body politic. And she also was an ardent Baptist. And she was terribly afraid of the effect of Roman Catholicism. Most Roman Catholics in that era were Democrats. And she was afraid that the Jesuits were going to proselytize the former slaves and convince them to be Democrats. And so part of her mission was also not only trying to educate and convert the slaves to Baptist, uh, the Baptist faith, but also to make them Republicans, that they would vote a certain way. Um, And so it was those sort of things that brought her into the Confederacy and the post-war South. 1850,
1: she was 26 years old. That was her birthday. She watched her friends get married, but she was still single. Did she value her
0: freedom? She very much did. She She did not have any desire to be married, and it's interesting, in her letters, when she had students who would get married, she would describe that, but for her, she said... She would not submit to any of creation's lords. I think that's the way she put it. In other words, she did not want a man telling her what to do. She did not want a man telling her where she could go or when she could go there. She wanted that sort of autonomy to be able to, if she wanted to go to Ohio or to Illinois or to somewhere else, she wanted to be able to make that decision. And so I don't think she had any regrets about not getting married because she had the freedom to do as she chose. There was only one man she ever worked with who she respected so much that she was willing to submit to his leadership, and that was a guy named Henry Tupper, and he was the founder of Shaw University. But in every other case, she she wanted to make sure she was calling the shots.
1: In one of her letters, it was so fascinating, she voiced her political opinion. Can you mm-hmm. tell us about that?
0: Yeah, this was in 1860 where she went to hear an abolitionist speaker named Ichabod Coddington and and she heard this lecture that he gave And this was a time when the white South was trying to prohibit abolitionist speech. There were laws throughout the South that made it illegal to speak or to write or to publish things that were abolitionist in nature. And in fact, in January of 1860 or 61, give or take, um, Stephen Douglas, the senator from Illinois, had proposed some sort of sedition law where he was allegedly threatening to throw abolitionists in prison for articulating their beliefs that slavery was wrong. And so she went to this speech and she was just so fired up by it. And, you know, she thought rightfully so that women should be able to be politicians. And if that, if she were in power, she would never allow this sort of thing to happen. And it's interesting that sort of fire comes out periodically in her letters when she was in Norfolk, she went to Fort Monroe and she actually got to see where Jefferson Davis was imprisoned after the Civil War. And Jefferson Davis was never punished for his treason. He spent two years in prison and then was let out on bail. And then eventually the charges against him were were dropped. And he was pardoned on Christmas Day, 1868. And when Harriet Bus went to his prison cell, and, and saw where he was in prison. She said something like to her parents, you know, if I was in charge, he would have been hanged and a lot more people like him would have been hanged for, for their treason. And she she often wished that she could have been more of a leader than society at the time would allow.
1: How did you feel about training the next generation of black
0: teachers At that point in her career, by the late 1860s and early into the 1870s, she she believes that black teachers are going to be the best way for African-Americans to be elevated in Southern society. And she talked about schools being centers that radiate out light. And I think that for her, she knew she was limited ultimately in what she could accomplish. But if she could train these young men and then ultimately Shaw would become co-ed and allow women in as well, if she could train these young men and women to be teachers, that they could then go out and and spread education and civics and citizenship further. And she hoped that that would be how it would work out.
1: Now, once she got to Raleigh, North Carolina, she described... um leaders among them. Tell us about that.
0: Among the students? Yes. Yeah, you know, she found that the students there were, were really eager to learn and to participate. And she grew to have a, a great affection for, for some of them. And, and one in particular really stands out in my mind. There was a young student named Thomas Knoll. And Thomas Knoll had been a soldier in the Union Army. He had served in a U.S. Colored Troop Regiment. He was from Arkansas but had come to North Carolina for an education and the problem was that Thomas Knoll was an Episcopalian and only Baptists could get a scholarship and get funding towards their education. And so Thomas Knoll was suffering financially. And then Thomas Knoll gets very sick. And we, we ultimately don't know what happens to him because her letters end when she goes home and, and we don't know if, if or when he died at, in his time at Shaw University. But while he was well... She would write home and ask her family to support him. And then when he gets sick, she really pleads with people at home to support him because he can't support himself and he's not getting this scholarship. And she would give him money to try to support him so that he could get better and, and be a leader. And some of the most touching moments that she describes involving Thomas are, you know, he had been a soldier and she would allow him to lead the men in military drill, and she she would just watch him with such pride as he was leading these men, telling them, you know, right face, left face, about mar- uh, about face, march, stop, you know, all these sort of orders. And she she said he he was like an officer. He was so professional in how how he drilled the men, um, and that gives a sense, I think, of the leadership that these young men were taking and also just how much she cared for him, that she was willing to try to do anything she could to support him.
2: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail from accepting payments to managing inventory. Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. The
1: Raleigh, North Carolina students versus the South Carolina students. Could you tell some differences in her letters?
0: Yeah. The South Carolina students are have a very broad age range, so they go from very young to very old. And many of them had not been around very many white people at all in their lives. They had zero education before she arrives in her schools. And those are the schools where she finds the behavior issues that she wrote home about. And for them, they were starting from scratch in terms of education. And so she's teaching them out of the Bible, she's teaching them the Lord's Prayer. She's also then trying to teach them how to read and write. Her most famous student in South Carolina was Robert Smalls. Robert Smalls is one of the most incredible figures of the Civil War era. He had been born into slavery in South Carolina. In May of 1862, he stole. He was working on a Confederate ship, the Planter, in Charleston Harbor and she he actually stole the ship along with 15 other african americans on it including some friends and his wife and kids and his friends wives and kids and they were able to escape out of the harbor and make it to the union blockading vessels and turn the ship over to them. Robert Smalls became a national hero after that. He met Abraham Lincoln, he gave speeches to big crowds in Congress or in in Washington D.C. and after the Civil War, he served in Congress for 10 years. Well, we now know from Harriet Bus's letters that Harriet Bus was his teacher and also taught his children when he returned back to Beaufort, South Carolina in 1863, he would come to the home where she was living and she would give him private lessons on how to read and write. And she was really proud of him in how he was learning and she thought really highly of Robert Smalls' children and she also recorded some of her conversations with Robert Smalls. Robert Smalls told her at one point that he thought the white women of the South were the real problem, not more so than the white Confederate men. And he said, you know, the, the white Southerners are so worried that if the slaves become free, that the white women are going to marry black men. And he said to Harriet... If the other black men are anything like me, they don't have to worry about it because we have no interest in, in marrying them. Um, and so her letters give these really incredible insights on the in South Carolina on the one hand to the this very rural uh, population, and then also people like Robert Smalls who would go on to become very famous. And none of the biographers of Robert Smalls have ever known about Harriet Buss, or these letters where she describes conversations with him. They're actually, I think Amazon is making a movie about him, and I've been trying to reach out to them to say, hey, here's some new insights on on Robert Smalls. So far, I haven't been able to get through to them. Um, in, in Norfolk, she teaches in an urban setting, and she teaches in a high school. And so she, in that case, she's teaching older students, mainly teenagers, but most of them in fact, all of them had been born in slavery, denied an education. So they're they're a closer, they're a tighter age age range, um, and it's a more formal setting because they were working in a government building where she was where she was teaching. But she had very large classes there. I think the South Carolina classes could get as large as eighty, and I think in in Norfolk her classes would be about forty or fifty. Which, as a teacher, like I just think about how big of a class that would be. And then when she gets to North Carolina, there she's teaching in what will eventually become a, an HBCU, a historically black college or university, Shaw University. And in that case, I think a number of these men had had some education before. It was all men in that case, whereas the earlier two schools had been male and female. But now she's teaching men and they have education uh, in some cases, and they're going to go on to become educators. And so in each place, she had a, a really different sort of student body. And I think that shaped her experiences in in pretty important ways.
1: Those letters also gave us information about the types of people she met and how she worked with people, where she lived. Can you tell us specifically about some of those examples of the people she met?
0: Yeah, In South Carolina, when she first moved to Beaufort, she lived in a in a building that's now actually a bed and breakfast called Anchorage 1770. And when Lydia and I were working there, uh, working on the book, we took a big trip of students down and got our picture taken outside of outside of that building. And while she was there, she is meeting Union generals and soldiers. She met James Montgomery. He had been a fighter in Bleeding, Kansas in the 1850s. And she expected him to be a really sort of wild-eyed man uh, because he had participated in this just brutal hand-to-hand neighbor-against-neighbor fighting in in Kansas during the 1850s. And he ended up being a very soft-spoken man. In 1863, Lincoln sent his private secretary, John Hay, down to South Carolina, and she had dinner with him. And he was a, a very uh, charming guy in his early 20s, and she she really liked him. She met David Hunter, who was a Union general, and she did not care for him. She saw, as I mentioned before, she saw Harriet Tubman. We don't know if she interacted with Harriet Tubman, and she actually got Tubman's name wrong. She called her Harriet Tubbs, but she did describe how Harriet Tubman was able to lead Union soldiers on raids and um, get chickens and other animals that they brought back for the use of of the people in Beaufort, South Carolina. In, um, in all of the places she lived, she would live in a community of teachers and so that's one of the things that really comes out is how these teachers would live together and do life together. So she often would describe Thanksgiving dinner in, in all these different places. And I should say... Harriet Buss loved food, going all the way back to the 1850s when she was a student in school and would write home to her parents. She would describe all the food she was eating and how much more food she wanted and how many pies she could eat. And I mean, some of them you get the sense that she was just really trying to be humorous in, in these letters. But in each of these different communities of teachers, she describes the Thanksgiving dinners that they're eating. In South Carolina, she describes the African-American cooks and also what other local black men would bring her when they would catch fish and bring it to her in. Um, and And then in North Carolina, I guess I would add that she was interacting with a lot of local white people. And she describes those interactions in some detail as well. She describes going to stores and how well she was treated by the local whites. In in Norfolk, you could get the sense that local white people were not happy with her presence. in In Raleigh, you get the sense that People there respected Henry Tupper, the man who founded Shaw. And so that respect then trickled down to some of the teachers as well. And so she would go into the stores and was well treated. And in one particularly gruesome entry, she describes having a tooth pulled without any sort of anesthesia or anesthetic. And, you know, the pain, like I cringed when I was editing that part because of. How, how graphic it was, um, but, but she was having those kind of interactions with local white people in North Carolina, and it seems for the most part that, you know, she would talk about how the Klan was there, but they were kind of far away, and she never really feared them.
1: In her letters, we learn about Mr. and Mrs. Tupper, and I think a lot of people are not aware of all the things he did to start the school. Can yeah. you tell us that story?
0: Yeah. Henry Tupper was from Massachusetts and before the Civil War, he was not raised in uh what we would call a Christian family. His parents were not Christians. But when he turned about 18, he converted to Christianity. He went to Amherst College and then Andover Theological Seminary. And he graduated from the seminary in 1862. And a few weeks later, he joined the 36th Massachusetts Infantry and went to fight in the Civil War. And he fought at Fredericksburg. He fought outside of Vicksburg. And on a couple of occasions, he came very close to being killed. But the, the people who wrote sort of his early biography in the late 19th century said that he was spared by Providence for his great life work. And after the Civil War, he had suffered some injuries and he and his wife decided that they would move to North Carolina. It's a better climate than the New England. You know, it's a lot warmer. And so he thought he would settle there and start a school. And initially he started in basically a very small house. And over time they were able to raise funds and and get larger buildings. And then while Harriet was there. They actually got a a massive gift from a a New Englander with the last name Shaw. And that then set Shaw University on the path to becoming a a major institution of higher learning for African-Americans. And uh, Harriet was there right at at the ground level. And she loved Henry Tupper and she she loved his wife, Sarah, and saw them almost as family. And so uh, she was fully... Invested in the mission that they had there.
1: What is the overall message that you want your reader to live with once they finish this
0: book? That's a great question. Um, my hope is that readers will see the transformation that Harriet experienced through her, her interactions with African Americans. My hope, too is that the book will give insight into the black experience during the war and during reconstruction the struggle that african americans went to, through to learn how to read and write and so that they could then use those skills and abilities to better their lives <clears throat> um I, last year or 2 years ago now I published a book called To Address You as My Friend, African-American's Letters to Abraham Lincoln. And that book consists of 125 letters from black men and women to Lincoln during his presidency. And one of the letters in that one that always jumped out at me came from a guy named Hannibal Cox. And in his letter to Lincoln, which he wrote in March of 1864, Hannibal Cox described how he had been born into slavery And because of that, he had been denied the right to an education. And then the Civil War came and he joined a black regiment and he gained an education through these kind of teachers and soldiers in the South. And in 1864, he was so proud of the fact that he had learned how to read and write and that he was serving in the army that he wanted his commander in chief to know. And so he sent a letter to Lincoln telling his life story, and then he copied out some lines of poetry about the American flag from Harper's Weekly, and he sent it to Lincoln. And at the very bottom of this letter, he added a little postscript, and Hannibal Cox said, I sends this for you to look at. You must not laugh at it. And I've always been so touched by that letter from Cox to Lincoln, because it captures how important education was to this generation of black men and women emerging from slavery. And Cox knew that his letter might not be perfect, the spelling and grammar, there might be mistakes, but he was so proud of what he was doing that he wanted the commander in chief to know. And I think Lincoln read that letter with great pride because that letter is now in Lincoln's personal papers at the Library of Congress. I think that was meaningful to Lincoln. And I, I thought of that with your question because my hope is that by reading about these experiences of formerly enslaved people coming into freedom and the great lengths they go to learn how to read, um, I I hope that that will be inspiring to modern readers in terms of just how important education is and, and um, how hard this generation of Americans went to overcome oppression and to struggle against uh, inequality and oppression. And, and that doesn't mean everything you know, turned out rosy in the end. Obviously, we know about the shortcomings of Reconstruction and um, the many struggles that will persist for over a century and a half and that still continue. Um, but this is a, a really important moment in American history. And I think these letters shed a, a really important new light on this moment.
1: Well, I've taken up enough of your time. Can you tell us the next project you'll be working on?
0: Yeah. So this year I'm going to publish a couple of books. In, on August 1st, I'm publishing a book called Shipwrecked. And it's, the, it's a biography of a man named Appleton Oaksmith who was, a, who was convicted of slave trading during the Civil War. And he's got this really remarkable story where he was arrested for outfitting ships for the slave trade and was convicted in federal court in Boston and then escaped uh, from jail and went to Havana, Cuba, and lived in exile for the next 10 years. And I use his story to show the the lengths that the Lincoln administration went to destroy the illegal transatlantic slave trade. The slave trade was made illegal in this country in 1808. In 1820, it was declared piracy, and yet for the next 40 years, our slave trading laws or anti-slave trading laws were never really enforced, and no one was ever really punished for participating in that horrific traffic across the Atlantic Ocean. And so Shipwrecked will tell the story of how the Lincoln administration destroyed the slave trade during the war through the lens of this one particular man. And then in September, I'm publishing an edited collection with a friend named Brian Matthew Jordan. And this one is called Final Resting Places: Reflections on the Meaning of Civil War Graves. And we found 29 historians and we asked them to each of them to pick a grave site that was meaningful to them and to write an essay on what that gravesite means to them and also uh, what it tells us about the civil war and so we've got a lot of really prominent writers we have david blight wrote the foreword people like alan gelzo and michelle crowell of the library of congress hillary green of davidson a lot of really wonderful historians and each gravesite is different. So it's not just a bunch of headstones. But my friend Anna Gibson Holloway wrote about the turret of the USS Monitor as a gravesite because it, it was discovered about 25 years ago or 20 years ago, and there were two skeletal remains in it. Or Michael Vorenberg of Brown University. He wrote an incredibly moving essay about something that happened very close to Harriet Buss, actually, when she was in South Carolina. There were 20 black men on a small boat and a, a sailor on a larger boat very carelessly went past them quickly and capsized this smaller boat. And the 20 men could not swim and drowned. And so he writes about the Stono River in South Carolina as a grave and the 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 death that these 20 men faced. And our hope is that the book, it's it'll be beautifully illustrated with over 100 color images. And our hope is that it'll offer a new, really moving entry in way into thinking about the Civil War.
1: Well, we will be looking forward to all of those books. Thank you so much for being on the podcast.
0: Thank you so much for having me.